1,000 better, 1, stories. better, stories. 1, better stories. better stories. Welcome to 1,000 Better Stories, the Scottish Communities Climate Action Network's podcast sharing stories of community-led climate action in Scotland to help us all imagine a better and fairer future beyond the new normal and transform what we think is possible. Hello, it's Kashka, one of the SCAN's story weavers. I have a question for you. Have you ever tried to get your head around climate models and what they show that may happen in the next 50 to 100 years to the places where you live, places which you love and care about, what it would really mean for you and your children? Well, today we bring uh, you a story behind a Storylines project based in Outer Hebrides aimed at exactly that, combining creativity oral history and science to start to help local people and communities engage in adaptation planning in the way that's meaningful to them. The project got support from SCAN's Pockets and Prospects Fund, as well as NERC, Adaptation Scotland and Lanhije Climate Beacon, and involved a number of partners. Hello, I'm Matthew Logan and I work for Community Energy Scotland and we were asked by SCAN to put this podcast together about a project we were part of earlier in the year called Outer Hebrides Storylines. Um, you'll hear all about the project during this podcast. You'll probably hear a bit too much of my voice as I walk you through everything and introduce you to a few of the other individuals and organisations who worked on the project with us, including Dr. James Pope from the Met Office, a Lewis-based artist, Sandra Kennedy, and Eleanor Pratt from Adaptation Scotland. The idea for this kind of storylines approach comes from uh, the Met Office and working with Adaptation Scotland to kind of develop that idea a bit, uh, a bit further. And, and really what I think is at the core of it is connecting uh, data and projections and climate science, I suppose, as a whole with everyday stories and everyday language that uh, that people can understand uh, and also kind of taking a, a regional approach. So finding out what important weather conditions and trends are for a particular area um, and working to find a way that connects science about those trends with local stories and uh, kind of local understandings of them. Uh, and so in our case, um, we were really lucky um, in the Climate Change Working Group to have a connection with Adaptation Scotland, who then kind of connected the group with uh, James Pope from the, the Met Office. Uh, James kind of introduced us to the idea and uh, some of the science he'd already started looking into. Um, and it was at that stage that we decided to focus on winter storms and, and particularly winter storminess as a weather feature or a feature of our weather system that um, yeah, affects the islands quite a lot, obviously over the winter period and um, is quite kind of recognisable and iconic in the area. Um, so we then started working on the project um, and it was about January this year that we got connected with Sandra, who um, has then kind of followed up by, by gathering stories and um, yeah, and, and bringing everything together. And I think 
kind of the, the aims of the piece are to communicate that climate science in, a, in an accessible way um, and really a, a new way to trial this as a new way of engaging people with uh, adaptation. And so not just thinking about how the climate is going to change, but thinking about how we can change our lives or um, our systems, our infrastructure to, to adapt to those changes. We'll now listen to Tulis Gale, part one, uh, historic events. probably for most other people here is the the one in 2005 um i was in north used for that one so um yeah none of us are forgetting that one in a hurry um basically i was staying in a a little cottage in north used um attached to what was a derelict building called sponish and i was an art student uh, at the time and uh, yeah we just got sent home from college um it was a completely electrical building there was no um heating or anything like that and we had a toddler staying with us the family this thing so um our landlord he was like on the radio talking about us because <laughs> um, he came over um in you know chest deep in uh water um over a causeway and a uh, bridge and stuff um and there was like slates you know being fired into the ground like you know shards um and he came with like water and food from the hotel um they had a generator so they were they were doing takeaway foods um and milk for the Miguel um yeah candles and things like that um and I think I, I almost got hit by a piece of um corrugated plastic um because we were just uh I smoked at the time <laughs> and uh, they were it was still during the day and there was people they were outside um and I was just standing by the door um trying not to you know get hit by flying stones um, and uh, as soon as I, I walked away um, a big crashing noise and this big piece of corrugated plastic was there just around me. Um, yeah we had cows sheltering underneath our windows um, and uh, the shed's uh, door got blown off and that whole shed got kind of blown down because the wind got in there. Um, yeah, and you just like the whole night could just hear the tiles being lifted and slammed back down. Um, it was just like, probably the scariest thing. Um, and of course, the next day we heard more tragic kind of uh, outcomes about that as well, which I'm sure you all know about. So.
one storm after another. When you tear the inshore forecast on the on the Coast Guard, it was always sort of not just six to seven occasionally eight, it was Force nine becoming storm ten, occasionally violent storm eleven and there was it just seemed like it was going on for weeks. But ending on there was a huge amount of st- storm surge came up once the the tides had come up uh, when I come out to spring tides. It was just something I'd never seen before in the loch here with the, the tide surging in and out like a wave on a beach on the west side. It was just crazy. And I think the the worst day it was like after it had calmed down a wee bit, we still had the surge and we thought we'd get out and do a wee bit of fishing. And uh, the tide was going north all day. Couldn't find any of our creels, so we're down with there was probably about two knots of tide heading straight up the minch. And then the second day we were out, it was going south at the same speed. Uh, it's just you know, the tidal streams were completely irrelevant to the, the the force of the water that was moving around. And flooded Stornoway out. They were that's when they were out with the paddle boards uh, in Cromwell Street. Boats are up over the pier. Yeah, it was, it was pretty dangerous weather. That's what I remember of it anyway. E15, we had a bad storm where it was blown over a hundred pack an hour. That's just after I built the shed. The worst ever, I think, for the frequency of storms. Yeah, 2014-15. But the 13th of February 1989, uh, that was our right, our right, uh, well, a hurricane, that's all that's to it. I remember that day when we were, I, I was, I was up for it on the lifeboat, slip in the mornings at Cuddy Point, and I heard this bang, and I looked round, and about a dozen mature uh, Douglas fir trees, they, they didn't blow over, they snapped with that, with that terrific bang. Uh, that, was a, that, that was a terrible thing. Damage. Uh, yeah, I actually put a hole through the side of the shed today and the hole the slate made in it back in 2015. <laughs> 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 they put an extractor fan in it. I thought, oh, well, I've already got a start of a hole, so I might as well make it bigger. <laughs> <laughs> that was handy. That was really handy. So what you're about to hear just now is uh, an excerpt from a presentation given by Dr. James Pope from the Met Office um, at one of the Storylines sessions. So James just goes over the underlying science that uh, underpins the Storylines project. And what I was able to do was to identify using the weather station data for Stornoway, Bambecula and South Uist, was which of these weather patterns were most associated with the wet and windy weather in the Outer Hebrides. And I identified six of these weather patterns. Across the year, 
across the winter, they're fairly average in the amount of time they occur. Um, it's around about four days, five days for one pattern. But in total, in an average winter, you would expect about 22 days to feature these weather patterns, to feature wet and windy weather. Obviously, there's variation year on year, but we'll come to that a bit later. Now, we can take the climate projection into the future and we can look at how these change. So for our low emissions scenario, by the 2090s, the end of this century, you can actually see that there's no real change in the total number of days. It's still around 22 days on average of these sort of impactful weather, weather patterns, wet and windy weather occurring. There's some change in which weather patterns are occurring, but ultimately as a whole, this sixth, their frequency remains the same. In the high emission scenario, we're getting almost nine days more. So you're looking at sort of 31 days worth wet and windy, impactful weather patterns every winter, which essentially is a whole month or obviously 90 days in the meteorological winter from December to February. So it's a makes a significant chunk of time in an average winter. But why does this happen? What drives this process? Well, it's actually a natural part of our climate system called the North Atlantic Oscillation, which has two phases. It's positive and it's negative phase. In the positive phase, the Azores high and the ice and low are very strong and this drives a strong jet stream across the Atlantic from west to east and it brings wetter and windier stormier conditions to the British Isles whereas in the negative phase the Azores high or the ice and low or both of them are quite weak this results in a much more wavier jet stream and we get stuck in a region of higher pressure that is colder and drier bringing either northerly flow from the Arctic or easterly flow off the colder winter continent and results in colder conditions Historically, we generally have NAO positive conditions in a winter. That's our usual setup, both you see from the number of the red bars, NAO positive compared to the negative NAO blue, NAO, the blue, the negative NAO bars in blue. And the black line shows the mean condition rolling. And beside of sort of the very strong NAO negative in 2010, you generally see where we have positive conditions. Both the work that I've done for the Outer Hebrides, but also my more broader research looking at the British Isles, suggests that we will see 40% more NAO positive winters in a high emission scenario, and a third of the number of NAO negative winters. However, we will still get both types of winter. And you can think about this as uh, changing the way a die falls. So at the moment we roll the die, there is a, a chance of whether it's NAO positive or NAO negative and a certain weighting you might expect. In the future, we will push that weighting further towards the NAO positive. So we're much more likely under climate change to throw NAO positive to end up with warmer, wetter, westerly wind conditions and the potential for more named storm events compared to the calmer, quieter NAO negative. I introduce you to Sandra Kennedy, who is the local artist behind the Outer Hebrides Climate Storyline project. How are you doing, Sandra? Great, thank you. Yes, how are you? Ah, not bad, not bad. Could you tell us a little bit about your yourself, Sandra, and your connection with with Lewis, um, and maybe a bit about what attracted you to to this? So, I'm an artist based in Lewis. I have been um, brought up. I was born here and brought up here, and um, brought up speaking Gaelic as well as English. I'm in Maravig, which is a beautiful little village. It's on the east side of Lewis, 
um, it's quite a rugged landscape with lots of sea lochs and the villages were all built around these sea lochs because they were quite sheltered and made good harbours. So Maravig is a very natural harbour. Yeah, yeah. And so a lot of connection with the sea throughout the village. Yes, absolutely. Um, and the storylines kind of idea. Well, when I finished college, I was doing a lot of animation, um, making up little stories with groups, usually children, and um, making short films. So I'm very interested in working with stories. And for these films, I used to make soundtracks anyway, and I thought this would be a really good... Um, it would be quite an apt thing to make a soundtrack for this storyline commission using people's real life stories really attracted me and there's so many brilliant char characters on the island and I think the material would be very rich so um, that's why I put a proposal in for making these soundtracks. Mm. Obviously, you were successful with that uh, proposal and it's been great to, to work with you throughout the project. Um, what have you enjoyed about working on Storylines? Um, I've really enjoyed um, chatting to people and just getting a little insight into how the various, um, just the various ways that the weather affects us in our daily lives, whether it's their work. Um, practically or whether it's just you know affecting our mood or even affecting our physical fitness we're not able to get out for walks and things like that so it's it's very uh, all-encompassing um, yeah yeah and have there been any sort of challenging elements to bringing the piece together um it's people don't normally like talking into microphones um, <laughs> so it's a wee bit tricky um, just to get folk to agree to to doing a piece that would be recorded but um, yeah I suppose the other thing is you know it was a really tough winter when we were working mm. um, in February here when we had a lot of storms so people were pretty exhausted and uh, asking folk to come on a Zoom to talk about the weather was like, oh, come on, <laughs> quite, quite tricky. But um, yeah, we, we did get enough contributors to, to make it work. Yeah, and I think uh, once once people started talking, it was harder to stop them sometimes uh, when they started telling stories. It, it, could you tell us a little bit more just about the process that you went through to, um, to develop the piece, the pieces, Sandra? Um, so I had in my idea that the whole, you know, idea was to connect the data um, that James from the Met Office had come up with for, for projections into our future storms. So connecting that data with real lived experience. So how to do that in, a, in one piece. So I, I just thought, well, we can split it up so that the data is forming the the music and the soundscape and to have that as a, a backdrop almost to to like sound bites of what people were telling us so um that data <laughs> soundscape was produced by um using a software that would 
um, transcribe it almost into a into a musical scales. It's called it's like a sonification process. Uh -huh. So the soundtracks, the, the kind of music in the background, is based on that sonification. And that, it's based, yeah, yeah, that that bed of sound that's sort of underneath all of the soundtracks we've been listening to is is actually spreadsheets worth of of data uh, from the UK climate projections. Yes, it's pretty amazing. Um, if anybody wants to try this at home, you can. There's a, a website called Two Tone, which is an online software, and you can um, basically feed it numbers through an Excel document sheet, and it'll convert these into musical scales. The other kind of element of the of the pieces is the conversations and the, and the stories that that. Um, Islanders, Islanders told you throughout this process, Sandra, and, and I think a part for me that's that's really nice to hear is the weaving of the Gaelic and English throughout the piece. And I was wondering if the actual gathering or the telling of those stories differed at all when when you were talking to people in Gaelic or in English, or how that um, how those two yeah combine. Um, for the Gaelic one, we had more participants in the one session. And it really was a bit of a keely and it was uh, quite a bit of fun. <laughs> so, and some fun stories as well. Um, so I think uh, maybe, I don't know, it's, it seemed to be quite um, a wee bit more popular, <laughs> the Gaelic sessions, um, and folk were very relaxed to speak in these. Um, so maybe, I don't know, the, the older folk that I interviewed, um, they just really had monologues. Um, they're just such good storytellers. So I had um, two folk in the village, one of is my uncle, another who's a cousin. They're both in their 90s. <laughs> but um, they knew I was, they were prepared for me coming in and they just had pretty much their stories that what they wanted to see prepared and they just um really flowed really well so um very impressive <laughs> Naturals, yeah and could you tell us a little bit about the the themes of the pieces that you picked out sandra and, and kind of how each one of those emerged yeah so because you know it, the pieces were going to be ongoing prompts as you know discussions on adaptations just thought okay we'll split it into how how the climate and the weather affects us so um and we did have quite a few fishermen speaking with us and that became a sort of work focused theme um, and we were asked you know i was asking a lot of questions as well to folk about you know how does this affect your daily life um, you know, even your social life, how does the weather affect it? So that became a sort of lifestyle, broadly lifestyle kind of theme. Um, and the other thing that was coming up was people did want to talk about uh, more historic mega events, like storms that were in the past. So um, 1950 was um, when the... Um, the Clan Macquarie came ashore. That was a horrific storm. And um, so some of the older people remembered that. 
and some people had stories that were secondhand as well. And there was a big storm in 1989 and of course 2005 as well. So that kind of became its own theme as well, um, talking about the, the bigger events that thankfully don't happen so often. Okay, great. Well, thanks very much for chatting to us, Sandra. Been great to hear about the process of, of making the storylines. Thank you very much. We'll now listen to Tula Scale Part 2, uh, Lifestyles and Habits. Hami ski in juice, Sandra. Hoping to start my couch to 5k again and get some exercise, but just can't really. Hami's going to be able to find a that thing. Ski, I guess, um, where woman food, who laughing jolly, who really getting in ya. Really fastness, miss really fastness, dad. I was just talking to somebody a wee while ago, and they were saying they were going to come up here last night, but they fell asleep because they're just knackered, just battling the weather. we get into this sort of this system where there's a lot of lots of these little low pressures bouncing around and, and rolling across that it's very hard to shake it off i think that's what you often sort of see in in these sorts of you know the, these westerly westerly biased winters sharp intense northwesterly that we got and it was really it was quite impressive our house overlooks the sound of harris and um it was quite blowy from the south all day and then it went totally flat calm and I was just making the Sunday dinner about four, half four and 20 to five, you just saw the wind coming and it wasn't like a squall, it just came and just maintained the intensity and for about three hours it was just absolutely, it was really wild and then it died off but, um, you know, we lost the power. I guess uh, paracuts, um, absolutely love paracuts. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, they were brilliant when I was wee and I think they were brilliant fun now. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think it's more severe. And I think this year, I think everybody's feeling it more, this kind of just not getting much of a break from the storms. And it's not even um, the most severe ones. It's just like rough, you know, it's the 50 when everyone's just knackered with it, you know, just getting fed up and being pushed around. <laughs> um, I've seen a lot of photos on Facebook and things of the huge, huge, huge waves they had yesterday. I don't know if you saw them. Oh, <laughs> And she knows 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 
Boring jou fijn slag het dit ek doe. Wel, want die trak in verrooi lekker sien mag manis in waie graas op op die daarmies sien. Ek kan nou moest dit was in bek waar korte zijn. Huil het al die Oh, well, yesterday in particular, it's, all, it's always uh, the, the same. Uh, I have a very sort of funny underlying anxiety about um, sea levels and, and rising sea and waves and things. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, I think yesterday was some of the biggest waves we've seen in a long time, I think, or certainly that I've ever seen. Well, uh, I mean, I couldn't have known me all got Yeah, what you know? So we kind of took the idea to, to that group um, and they were really keen to, to work together to develop a piece um, that could help them with their engagement on, on adaptation planning. Eleanor Pratt from Adaptation Scotland. Um, and that could bring together, yeah, that scientific analysis with sort of local voices and, and lived experiences. And yeah, and then and went through a really nice process of, of working with the local partners to commission a local artist who was interested in, in working with ourselves in the Met Office and really importantly with local communities to, um, to do that. And where do you kind of imagine or where would you hope uh, it's hard to know these things i suppose but um these kind of discussions that might be prompted by engaging with this piece and with the kind of creative um the creative side to to the climate science which focus around adaptation or around climate change where would you kind of see those leading on to or, or what could those feed into i wonder yeah so when were you when we're thinking about adaptation planning um, because climate impacts are experienced at a local level, it's really important that local knowledge and, and people and communities are really central to, to adaptation planning because um, fundamentally they're the ones who understand like the landscapes and the people um, that make up make up their places. Obviously we need adaptation at national and regional um, levels as well, but it's really vital that 
we make sure the actions on the ground are being um, driven by, yeah, like local knowledge, local priorities, because fundamentally the community knows who and what is, is vulnerable to climate change and why. So it's really important that they're able to be included um, in these, these kinds of discussions and, and planning. And we saw real value in working with a creative partner who could kind of help people tell their own stories and who could um, interpret the, the Met Office's kind of scientific analysis in a way that obviously remained true to the science, but made it more accessible and allowed people to connect with it in, in new and, and different ways. Um, and the piece ultimately gives, gives the climate change working group um, of the, the Outer Hebrides Community Planning Partnership and the Lanija Climate Beacon Partners a tool to help to communicate those, those future climate trends and projections um, in a way that can hopefully generate discussion and gather that local knowledge and lived experience that can inform um, adaptation planning activities. So we've already sort of trialed it being used um, in um, in a, a couple of different places where people sort of uh, listen to the pieces and and respond and then you know we've had really interesting discussions with folk where they've um, they've talked about you know what it is that they feel is important to protect from the impacts of winter storms in future and what climate ready might um, might mean for them and their community and those might be actions that people can do personally to adapt it might be community actions or it might be you know, suggestions to include in like local plans and, and policies. Um, but yeah, ultimately, you know, we really see um, see these storyline pieces as, as being a, a sort of a tool to help people um, engage with adaptation planning in a way that actually means something to them and is coming is, is enabling that sort of bottom up approach rather than something top down because you can't do good adaptation planning without having a, a really detailed sense of place and how climate impacts play out in, in specific places. You're not going to have um, ownership and empowerment without sort of listening to, to those voices and ensuring that that level of voice is included in decision making. Um, because if those actions don't mean anything to people who are actually most likely to be able to, you know, deliver them and inform them effectively, then they're not going to work. Um, so yeah, we hope, we hope that this approach is a, uh, a way of, of helping that to happen. Yeah, so a, a bit of a springboard or a kind of key to unlock those wider discussions about climate and to help people recognise the connection they may already have with with adaptation and what's going to happen. Yeah, exactly, and a way to um, you know to allow them to engage with the the evidence that sits behind you know the science that sits behind um, you know climate trends and projections. Um, also in a way that yeah doesn't doesn't require um, necessarily a, a climate scientist in your back pocket to um, to interpret things for you. And is this approach, Eleanor, um, something that you think Adaptation Scotland um, or other partners will will want to adopt on a wider basis? So um, kind of having this trial opportunity in, in the Outer Hebrides, do you then see it going on to be something that's more widely used? Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd love to see this approach um, sort of rolled out in other areas. I think it would be fascinating to see how um, different artists or, or creative practitioners might approach kind of this challenge and work with communities in, in different ways to, um, to, you know, sort of draw out and, and communicate these stories. Obviously, in this instance, um, you know, Sandra has, um, has used um, sort of sound 
um, and 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 sort of voice pops to um, to do that. But you know, we didn't know um, at the start of this project kind of what what the piece might look like. It could have been a graphic novel. It could have been a film. It could have been you know we we didn't know. And we deliberately left it very open because we wanted the the artist and the creative practitioner that um, that we were working with to have that that freedom to um, you know to to let the piece evolve as they as they saw best but I think it would be fascinating to see how that might um, that might be done in in other in other places and, and with different communities to help them hopefully sort of inform and, and lead adaptation planning um, yeah yeah well we'll we'll keep our eyes out for both opportunities to develop storylines uh, and then also opportunities to to hear them or to experience them in whatever medium they they emerge across Scotland hopefully over the next few years and yeah thanks very much for for popping in Elner and giving us a bit of an update on that side great to hear from you thanks Matthew we'll now listen to Tuliscale part three work and livelihoods I've always noticed that when you get this mild temperatures in the winter it's wet and along with it it's wild and unsettled and it's just you know, it's a lot harder to make plans ashore and uh, uh, and at sea. We think about two specific natural natural cycles that exist in the North Atlantic climate, which is refers to as the North Atlantic Oscillation. So this is the the balance of pressure between Iceland and the Azores, and it has a positive phase and a negative phase. So when we have a, a winter in the positive phase, we see predominantly more westerly conditions. When we have a negative phase, we see generally more stark, calm conditions or you know, potentially the, the opportunity for easterly conditions to arise. As an NAO positive, we think of 2013-14. The winter of 2014 was extremely stormy. <laughs> It, it turns the sea into milk. It's not right. It's not normal. Um, it's just lots of seaweed, and it just gets totally churned up. So this, the, all the shellfish goes into survival mode. All fish goes into survival mode, and they're not feeding. They feed well once everything dies down, because they're empty, obviously. But I remember one of the scallop skippers saying that all the clams got washed off into the deeper water. They, they kind of the 10 to sort of 25 fathoms sort of range where they usually work was completely wiped out all the way down the, the much coast coastlines. All the clams were washed out into deeper water and uh, they took quite a few years to recover after that. Uh, crabs, prawns, everything goes off. It just knocks it on the head. I was amazed on how, how much the wind, the waves, reduce from the offshore from 100 meters onto the coast they ha- they're losing all of their or a big part of their energy and they're just losing that because they're moving the seabed you know when you see breakers as far as the eye can see well that's when you know when it's, it's really bad it's, it's it's not surprising to see breakers in the entrances the west side has had such a beating in the last couple of weeks. It makes us wonder how a lobster can survive it. You know, that's their environment and, and they're well suited to it. When you're seeing reefs breaking sort of 15 miles west that you fish in the summertime, 
you really do wonder how the, the shellfish stocks and the marine environment can handle that. It's obviously part of it. It's awe-inspiring to see, I don't know, how does a little delicate tiny wee crab or a starfish or mussel or whatever survive 30 feet breaking waves in the Sound of Terency? It's just incredible. So, but it just because it's off the land, had that been an onshore wind, you know, you couldn't do it or anything in the West, but it's just because the, because you're using the land as a as something to hide behind, uh, you can you can push these in sort of thing. So, uh, had we been a southeasterly winter, we wouldn't have had anything done. Nothing. I wouldn't say that the bad weather something we couldn't work with. Had you know, if everything else was done all right, farming is obviously quite difficult. And if it's a particularly wet winter we have the, you know the farmers don't have any sheds for putting their cattle in or anything here so it obviously has an impact on the amount of feed they have to give to them and the price of getting feed in and the price of feed is very dependent on that in general i don't think it's attracting any youngsters towards it just because of how difficult it actually is it's it's a, it's astonishing how deep the groundswell goes with a real storm from the atlantic so we just can't it's just not viable to fish although you know, there's still crabs and lobsters moving about out there at this time of year. Um, it's not worth the risk, and you know, from a safety point of view, but also you, you would lose your gear. So we moved to the Minch, which, you know, you don't get the same groundswell conditions. So yeah, we fish deeper as well for langoustines. So the the seasons are good. It's good to get the change. It keeps it fresh. When you've when you've got mortgages and things to pay and. You know, we only earn when we're at sea, so if you're tied up because of weather, it's it's not great. So the boat that we have now is a lot more capable than than uh, any of the previous ones I've got. Um, and I would say weather weather was definitely a, a deciding factor in doing it, just so we could earn consistently, therefore meet our bills and, and keep a, a decent crew, because good crew are hard to get as well. And we all need a consistent wage every week. Um, and you're not going to do that with a smaller boat. Sure, Sahel thrown at you while you're fishing, but you know the rewards are there if you're willing to put up with it. Going in the dark, coming back in the dark. So that's us at the end of the podcast. Really hope you've enjoyed learning about the project and listening to the Tour Scale pieces. Uh, we had a good time putting it all together and are really happy to have captured this side of the Outer Hebrides. If you want to find out any more about the project, you can check out the Lan Hija website. That's L-A-N-T-H-I-D-E. Thanks. Bye. What a powerful way to convert dry data into a story reflecting the effects of climate on people's lives. Thanks, Matthew, for sharing it all with us. As a scientist, I love my graphs and diagrams and the information they can beautifully and succinctly convey. But this combination of data-driven soundscape and people's stories had a really visceral effect. Listening to storylines are suddenly new what it feels like to live in the windswept Hebridean islands. And the worry 
for the future where extreme wind may become more frequent and more ferocious. What helped me imagine that future too was my recent experience of the storm Arwen here on the East Coast, with its days of power outages, large swathes of Trinsmuir forest flattened just around the corner from where I stay, and um, and our Tayport Community Garden polytunnel squished by a fallen tree. I'm looking forward to hearing more about how the work is used to engage more people in conversations about the climate trends and, more importantly, adaptation measures required to counteract them in Outer Hebrides communities. And I hope that similar storylines can be developed for other areas of the UK with their own climate futures to consider. I have put all the relevant links in the episode notes for you to explore, including full versions of the three musical compositions, plus the one with poems inspired by the project. We also linked to the full version of Dr. Pope's presentation, should you choose to immerse yourself directly in the beauty and horror of modeling science. This is all for today. Uh, Look out for our next episode in a fortnight. Until then, take care of each other out there. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please give it a like and maybe even a review. It will really help us reach a wider audience. If something exciting is happening in your own community, be sure to let us know so that we can help you tell your own story. Or maybe you would like to join our brand new Storyteller Collective. You can drop our Story Weavers a line at stories at scottishcommunitiescan.org.uk. To keep up to date, check out our website at scottishcommunities.org.uk or find us on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram or simply sign up to the newsletter. Mm